Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai, welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, war in Europe. Russia's invasion of Ukraine sparks one of the biggest international crises of this century. This is the sound of a new Iron Curtain. Putin's aggression against Ukraine will end up costing Russia dearly. We will make sure of that. New Zealand joins our international partners in the condemnation of this attack. Then, as COVID case numbers explode, the pressure on hospitals intensifies. But one party says it's time to do away with COVID restrictions. And then, for two years, two years, one New Zealand town has been on a boiled water notice. I have never drunk the water since I moved here. The month I moved here, seven years ago, and brown came out of the water. But we begin this morning with the ongoing crisis in Ukraine. Almost 200 Ukrainians have been killed and Europe is in crisis after Russian forces invaded. Here's what's happened overnight. In the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, a 5pm curfew has been imposed as residents prepare for more fighting with Russian soldiers. Despite having received evacuation offers from France and the United States, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky appeared on social media to confirm he is staying in Ukraine. More than 20 countries have now offered Ukraine military assistance. So, what is Vladimir Putin's ultimate goal? And how is the situation likely to end? Professor Ruben Azizian is the director of Massey University's Centre for Defence and Security Studies. For decades, he was a member of the Soviet and Russian Foreign Services. And he's with us live this morning. Kia ora, thank you for being with us, Professor. What have you made of this week's events? Kia ora, Jake. Um... Well, it's, um, it's a very sad and uh, dark time for Europe, but for many of us, including myself, who 30 years ago um, was hopeful of Russia becoming a democratic and friendly state. And uh, I was, I've been all these years, I've been half jokingly telling my students that uh, I ended the Cold War in New Zealand. And my proof of that is that I was the acting ambassador for Soviet Union at the time, and I lowered the Soviet hammer and sickle flag. And we were all very excited in the embassy about a, a new era. Unfortunately, Russia has retreated from that. And what we are seeing is, I think, um, an expected outcome. I personally was shocked that this kind of a full-scale invasion happened. I was thinking uh, of Putin of uh, as someone who was still logical and rational in his own kind of um, uh, value system, but uh, that has exceeded all our expectations. Talk to us about that a little more, Professor. Why were you surprised and shocked? Well, the, the earlier conversation about the Ukraine crisis um, revolved around grievances, um, and some are justified that some Russians in Ukraine feel that democracy in Ukraine, um, which is welcomed by many, has also come with a certain uh, rise of nationalism. This is not unique to Ukraine. We know in many post-Soviet or post-communist countries, democracy is oftentimes accompanied by rise of nationalism, which is also a natural outcome. For decades, some of the republics in the Soviet Union were very much helped by Russia, but also Russified by Russia. And in Ukraine, there are probably more people speaking fluent Russian than their own Ukrainian language. There are more, were more people in Kazakhstan who probably speak Russian better than Kazakhs. So naturally, when 
the regime changes, they try to uh, develop their own culture, develop their own identity, and there are always forces who uh, perhaps go to the extreme side. But that doesn't mean that Ukraine has become an ultra-nationalist and Nazi country the way Putin portrays it. So. Um, so the, the whole thing was really about uh, a number of regions in Ukraine. Uh, Crimea, of course, is one which is mm. now part of Russian Federation, but also eastern part of Ukraine. And the conversation, the discourse before this invasion was that um, these regions have had enough. Uh, Ukraine doesn't really recognize them. Ukraine doesn't want to talk to them. So we, Russia, will have to do something about that. Um, but what happened next day basically was not just recognition of these republics, but and not only trying to expand their borders, but actually mm. attack Ukraine under this uh, pretext of demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine. That's a completely different thing. It's interesting to note Vladimir Putin's myriad justifications for this military action. As you mentioned, he has raised concerns about a rise in nationalism, or he says neo-Nazism, in uh, Ukraine. As well as that, he has concerns around the Ukrainian border and historic, um, historic conflict over where those borders should be drawn. As well as that... He says he has concerns about the expansion of NATO. He says the Ukraine government is a puppet government for the West. Are there any legitimacy to those other claims? Well, um, Putin has raised a number of issues and concerns of all mm. that you mentioned. Uh, the one that I can see a certain reason for concern is the expansion of NATO, in my personal opinion. Uh, that was probably not done uh, the way it should have been done, and that has raised a number of issues. Um, so and so how should it have been done? Well, I, I think uh, in the 90s there was uh, uh, there had to be more maybe consultation and discussion. Mm. And uh, you know, in the early 90s when the Soviet Union broke up, um, the, the Russian government at the time, led by Yeltsin, even asked if they could join NATO. Right. Now, of course, that was unrealistic for, for, for such a U-turn immediately to happen. But perhaps, um, and I understand there was a dilemma whether to, to you know, um, bring the East European countries uh, and protect them against the potential future Russian aggression. And some of them would say, see, we wanted to be hmm. uh, members of NATO for a reason. This is what uh, Russia has become. But maybe Russia wouldn't have become like this if uh, I think there was a little bit of a less uh, cavalier uh, approach by some Western leaders at the time. Um, and I think that, that in that context, I can understand certain concerns. But that doesn't absolutely justify mm. what is happening now. It does, doesn't justify at all the demand for Ukraine not to ever uh, want to join an, a security alliance. Uh, that's uh, a free choice of every country. Uh, and um, it doesn't justify at all calling Ukraine an artificial country. We remember there was a leader in Germany uh, who said similar things about artificial countries around. And to me, that is the scariest part. So from someone who was protecting the interests of Russian minorities in Ukraine, he has become much more than that. He is a person who is trying to change the world order and uh, who is bitter about mm. what was done to Russia before. And uh, he believes that the military solution is the solution. 
Professor, you are someone with an intimate knowledge of this region and of the people in this region. How much will people inside Russia know about what is happening? Well, some people in Russia watch uh, the Channel One, uh, not to be confused, of course, with uh, our own TV and Z. <laughs> Absolutely different thing here, uh, totally state controlled. Also, the older generation probably watches TV more than social media. They are, many of them are brainwashed by this propaganda. They don't really know what's happening, but uh, the younger people, of course, uh, uh, they have access to social media. But here is what I would like to explain. Even people who actually know what's going on, some of them do have a little bit of a concern or bigger concern that, you know, Ukrainians haven't treated Russians well uh, after the, their, their own color revolution. So, and there is also a certain rise of nationalism inside Russia. So mm. it's not just that people are fully brainwashed, they are also become a little more nationalistic as part of what's happening. There is this concern by some that, you know, yeah, the West is really trying to undermine us and all of that. But uh, uh, to me, I think uh, what happened, uh, I, I wouldn't call it a silver lining. There's no silver lining when people are dying and there's invasion, but it could be maybe a wake up call, mm. even for staunch supporters of Putin and those who believe that, you know, Russians were mistreated, mm. mistreated in Ukraine. I think this is a wake up call. It's a shock and potentially a political suicide for the regime in Russia sooner or later. That is very interesting. Professor, before we let you go, I just I just wondered at a personal level, having spent so much of your life in this region, how has it been the last few days? How has it affected you watching images of Ukraine under attack? Yeah, when I was approached about this interview, I was asked whether we should be doing the pre-recorded on life. Uh, I, I always prefer life because as an academic, I, I like to talk and I want to see eye to eye with the journalist who is interviewing me. But on this occasion, I said, well, maybe pre-recorded because I don't want to get emotional. And um, because uh, this is not just me talking here as a um, you know, international relations specialists or a political scientist. It's also me, as someone from former Soviet Union, who has certain values, and I'm not denying that, and who believes in democracy, who doesn't recognize, you know, kind of authoritarian uh, rules and despotism of the time. And I, I feel uh, very sad and, and tragic uh, about you know, loss of life, and not only loss of life in Ukraine, but loss of life of Russian young soldiers who are sent to fight a war which will not bring glory to Russia, but can only bring glory to those who are fighting this aggression. Well, I hope you will forgive me for the sensitive question. And thank you so much for giving us your time and insights this morning. We are all hoping for a peaceful resolution to the situation. That is Professor Ruben Azizian of Massey University. We have extensive coverage of the situation in Ukraine this morning. We're going to take you now live to Ukraine. And Pavlov Kukta is a Ukrainian politician and former minister in Vladimir Zelensky's government. He's currently in Vlev in western Ukraine and joins us now live. Thank you so much for being with us. I just wondered if you could describe the last couple of days to our audience. What have you been doing and what have you been seeing on the ground? Well, thank, thanks for having me. The last couple of days have been hellish, I'd say. I mean, it's a real war, large-scale war, the largest in Europe since World War II, in fact. 
Uh, we've had bombings, we've had planes over us. Um, just, you know, to give an illustration to you and your viewers, my ex-wife actually had a Russian interceptor shot down from the skies by Ukrainian Air Force right above her house with the pilot bailing out, dropping into a river, being fished out of there by her neighbors and given over to the police. So this is the kind of normal experience now in this country, right? Just a simple story of one person. This is how we've been living these last two days. There is a massive wave of evacuation coming from capital Kiev because it turned out that the Russian main point of attack was the capital, actually. The worst scenario they could have taken to try to take the heart of Ukraine. This is the largest city in Kyiv, so millions of people are flowing west. Uh, we are currently leave because I had to evacuate the family, so we had to bring everyone out. I've spent, I think, about 38 hours at the wheels with about two hours of sleep, so I'm sorry if I might be a little messy in my speaking or something. It, it's, uh, it, it really, you know... Um, keeps you at the nerves. Uh, once I settled the situation with the family, I plan to probably return to Kyiv to participate in the territorial defense or do something else for the defense of the country. It's literally a people's war here with thousands crowding round of military commissions mm. to sign up, mostly for the territorial defense units, which are given weapons from the government. It's easy to register, easy to sign up. People take up weapons, kind of occupy their territories, mm. try to protect them. It's the tactic Ukraine uses against the Russian uh, warfare because the Russians control the skies, so they control the open areas, then Ukraine defends the cities, and uh, the territorial units are quite helpful in that regard. Uh, this is kind of, uh, an, in a nutshell, what's going on here. Uh, this day, was it wasn't calm. There was, there was constant combat on the front lines, heavy combat by any standards. Mm. Uh, but at least there were no major changes in the situation. So it's more or less the same uh, in the evening right now. It's evening here in Ukraine mm. as it was in the morning. We'll see what night brings. Usually the Russians try to attack somewhere at night uh, in the morning. And then by day they try to kind of change the situation. But make no mistake, this is a major war. And, uh, you know, it, it's clearly a major unprovoked war, right? It's, it's mm. so much, uh, you know, it's so much so unjustified that it's kind of borders disbelief. Pavlo, you are currently in the west of Ukraine. You said to me that you're intending to return to Kiev and take up some sort of military position and try and offer some sort of... Um, opposition to Russian forces. Can you give us an insight as to the Ukrainian resistance? Because despite pledges from more than 20 countries to provide the Ukrainian government with military assistance, clearly the Ukrainian people are outgunned when it comes to military capacity. The Russian army and its resources are significant. So why are Ukrainians fighting? Well, again, it's a people's war. So Mr Putin has managed to solidify the nation in a, uh, something to something unprecedented right essentially even people with pro-russian sympathies who i personally know have none after these two days literally you won't find a pro-russian person in ukraine anymore ever i guess so everyone is uh, consolidated everyone is defending their nation it's not about politicians it's not about ideologies it's simply about the people the nation the country defending itself which is why there is such a massive wave of support so everyone is fully on the same page and those who aren't fighting are being supported fed by those who are 
not fighting. Mm. Uh, that is what's happening. So Ukrainians are defending. Uh, if we're talking about Ukrainian armed forces, they've actually shown a very surprising, even to me, though I know from inside Ukrainian government and the armed forces, a surprising amount of resilience and capacity. So Ukrainian Air Force, Ukrainian anti-air, uh, which was significantly weaker than Russia, never modernized as Russia did, was underinvested compared to Russia, mm. and was expected to be wiped out in the first days of the war, continues fighting. The Russian planes are being shot out of the sky. Ukrainian planes attack Russian troops on the ground. The system functions. And in fact, we even have an ace. So we have a mm. pilot who has shot down, I believe, six or seven planes by now in only two days. That is what is treated as an ace in the military. Mm. So even even the Air Force, which is most dependent on money, and where the R Russia was supposed to have the most advantage, even there, mm. Ukraine is quite capable of fighting. On the ground, it's even more than that, because Ukrainian soldiers are very motivated. Mm. And the Russian soldiers do not seem motivated by any extent. Generally, they, they try to push somewhere. If they face resistance, they retreat. You, on, in, on the Internet, there are multitudes of videos of them falling into an ambush, being shot mm. dead. There are big casualties, probably on both sides. I'm careful always about any official estimates. You know, after two days of fighting, we'll probably know the true numbers only after the conflict. But it's clear that the Russians are suffering major losses. Mm. So the, if we, you know, look at the results of the conflict so far, the Russian military is not such a powerful thing as it was supposed to be, or Ukrainian military mm. is significantly more powerful than people expected it to be. Pavlo, the world's eyes have been on Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Despite offers from France and the United States to help him uh, escape Ukraine into a safer position, he's so far refused, saying he will stay and fight. You were a minister in his government. What can you tell us about Volodymyr Zelensky? Look, he is uh, quite a character. I'm, I resigned at some point from his government, so I have my own reservations. But uh, those are quite meaningless when we have a, essentially a war of uh, a total war in our country. He is the commander in chief. He does his job. It is his job. It is his job to have guts, to have balls, mm. and to stay in the capital when the capital is being defended. And he's doing that quite admirably. So fine by yeah. me. I mean, we, we rally around the flag in this situation, whatever our political. Uh, what we like and what we don't like. If I may add, I would like to add something important, which is a message to the West, because ultimately the fate of the conflict very much rests on the shoulders of the West. Uh, the Russia is a heavyweight compared to Ukraine. It is unlikely that Ukraine would be able to defeat it alone. And the West's help is needed, but it does not mean that the Western soldiers have to fight there. What it means is that the Western sanctions have to be tough enough for Russia to be crippled mm -hmm. economically and ideally... Uh, that would really help. A no-fly zone should be introduced over Ukraine. The Russian planes should be thrown away. NATO should not allow them to fly over Ukraine, Russian planes and missiles. This mm. would even lay level, play, level the playing field between the two armies. And then, with these, uh, with with tough sanctions in place, Russia cut off from SWIFT, the international mm. payment system, which seems to already be happen happening. Russian central bank accounts frozen which seems to be in the work. There are already uh, articles in the media that the mm. Biden administration is contemplating that. And with the no-fly zone in place, this war will be won by Ukraine mm. with Western support. And this will stop Vladimir Putin and his, in his tracks, and he will not go further than Ukraine mm. anywhere. This will be the end of his regime. And I think that is the best outcome we can get out of this. Pavlo, I have one last question, and it is a difficult question. I know you have been awake for the best part of two days. I know you are trying to help your family 
and to safety, but it's your intention to return to Kiev and fight. Are you prepared to die for your country? If necessary. You know, no one likes to die, but it's a life or death situation here, literally, for the country. So if necessary, people will be sacrificing their lives, me as well. Of course, we would prefer not to. We would prefer to throw the Russians out. That's mm. what we would like to do. Well, we are all hoping for as peaceful a resolution as possible. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank Good luck you, in sir. getting your family Thank to you safety. Yeah. That is Pavlo Kukta, a former minister in Volodymyr Zelensky's government. Russia was able to use its power of veto to block a UN Security Council uh, action condemning uh, their behaviour in Ukraine. Countries around the world have condemned the invasion and introduced economic sanctions. It's really interesting to note the likes of Kazakhstan. One of Russia's closest allies has denied a Russian request for troops. But... Will the international response be sufficient? Will the sanctions be sufficient? Professor Robert Patman is the Director of International Studies at Otago University, and I began by asking him what he makes of the international response so far. Um, it's escalating, and I think it's... I think there's a lot of... Well, there's a lot of international support for the Ukraine. Um, I, I think, you know, the Americans and the NATO members have always made it clear they couldn't fight the Russians on Ukraine territory because... Ukraine is not a member of NATO, but I think there's a lot of assistance flowing into the Ukrainians, and the Ukrainians so far have shown uh, truly remarkable resistance. And I think there are already signs, if we're to believe the media reports coming through, that the Russians who had a sort of blitzkrieg strategy, I mean, I think Putin's strategy is based on a quick seizure mm. of uh, Kiev, the capital, decapitating the leadership and establishing a pro-Russian regime in Ukraine. And that seems to be the signs that the Russians are getting frustrated. I mean, I mean, despite the massive quantities of military assistance being promised to Ukraine at the moment, it's fair to say I think that Ukrainian forces are still outgunned. Is the resistance oh, yeah. futile? No. No, because um, one of the things about these conflicts is that the Ukrainians are determined to resist. That's quite clear. And secondly, this is quite a formidable... They, their military performance has steadily improved since the uh, Russians annexed Crimea mm. in 2014 and since the Russians intervened in eastern Ukraine in 2014. Um, I think what's happened is that the Ukrainians have developed the relations with the West since then. And uh, I think their military assistance from NATO countries, they are a partner of the United uh, NATO, but they're not a full member... Mm. Uh, has meant that their military performance has steadily improved. And, and we know from previous situations like Afghanistan, uh, Vietnam, indeed Iraq, that military superiority in terms of technology and troops doesn't always produce desirable political outcomes. I think Mr Putin has made a grave miscalculation um, because, in a sense, even if he takes over the whole country, it seems to me, and that's quite conceivable, he could, mm. I mean, you know, on paper, Kiev should fall within the next few days. Even if he achieves that, his objective of getting a pro-Russian government installed that's going to be acceptable to most Ukrainians who have experienced mm. quite a vibrant democracy for the last few years, we're talking about an authoritarian regime dictating to a democratic neighbour, is going to be very difficult to secure. Sanctions that have been introduced so far cover everything from economic restrictions to the Eurovision mm. Song Contest. What impact will the sanctions introduced so far be having? 
Well, it's very difficult to predict, uh, but they do, again, going by the the statements made by the leaders of the EU, the UK and um, the United States, the Biden administration, they're much more wide-ranging than the sanctions previously imposed when Russia annexed Crimea. And by the way, those sanctions really affected Russia. Mm. For two years, the Russian economy didn't grow after EU and US sanctions. And what is more, more than $150 billion left the country in 2014 alone in capital flight. That's uh, So um, I, I don't think we should underestimate the leverage that the rest of the world has. The other thing, sorry, I was just going to say, the other thing is, however, it's not just sanctions. I think the message, because we live in such an interconnected world, there are signs that the Russian population itself, mm. this is an authoritarian regime in Moscow, but there are, have been signs of protest and real discontent. I see that Russian doctors are protesting. They've started a petition. And so the signs of grassroots revolt against the invasion of Ukraine, most Russian people have not had the full picture on that. Putting troops on the ground isn't an option, at least for Western countries at this point. Are there more forceful sanctions that could be introduced? Uh, I think of the likes of the SWIFT system, which is the yeah. system that connects banks and financial institutions. Um, you know, could we see personal sanctions put on Vladimir Putin? Could we see sanctions on the Russian central bank? My understanding is that the, there have been sanctions imposed by the United States on um, Mr. Putin and his personal assets, as well as that of Mr. Lavrov, the mm. foreign minister, and, and as well as a number of other key players. In the UK, uh, oligarchs, which are close to Mr. Putin, have been targeted. Uh, I think this process is gradually tightening up. Um, yeah, so it, it's... The sanctions measures are going forth, but I think there are. I think the world could still do a lot more. Mm. Um, for example, collectively, many countries could get together. Maybe New Zealand could play a part in this and um, withdraw their ambassadors for a limited time, just to convey to the Russian people that the rest of the world find this invasion um, completely unacceptable, and the consequences of it must be reversed. I mean, this can't be allowed to succeed, in my judgment. Yesterday, China abstained from voting on a motion from the UN Security Council that would have deplored the Russian action. What did you think of that move? Well, two things. Firstly, it highlights that we simply don't have authoritative international mechanisms to deal with conflict between mm. countries. Um, the UN Security Council, it's ridiculous when, a, 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 you know, a plain aggressor is able to veto a resolution denouncing their aggression. That's what it's come down to. But China's position is interesting. It abstains, as you rightly say. And I think that shows that China is very aware um, that its interests are not closely as closely tied to Russia as many people assume. Uh, it regards Russia... It's always been a marriage of convenience between Ch China and Russia. China regards Russia as a junior partner. Its economy is only about the size of Italy's. And the other thing is China's um, economy is closely linked with the capitalist economy, world capitalist economy. So mm. China's not going to jeopardise its economic links too much for the sake of Russia. You mentioned New Zealand's response before, and you said New Zealand could consider withdrawing its ambassador. Is there anything else we can do at this stage? 
Yes, I think Mr. Putin's vision of the world is all about great power politics. When he made these demands on um, NATO never be, uh, sorry, you, the Ukraine never being allowed to be a member of NATO, for example, he dealt with the Biden administration. But in the 21st century, global politics is not just about great powers. I think New Zealand could use the precedent, the example of the Christchurch call when New Zealand got together with middle power, France, um, following the appalling uh, attack in Christchurch, mm. a terrorist attack. And it was, a, it, it was an initiative that more than 50 countries have signed up to, including the Biden administration, although the Trump administration had rejected beforehand. It's an interesting example of how small and middle powers can actually influence a world in which many of the problems we face can't be solved by anyone individually. And uh, I think that what we might be able to do here is produce a joint statement amongst the majority of countries in the world. It won't be listened to by the Putin administration, but such a joint declaration would be read and absorbed by the majority of the Russian people. And I think it's important that we cut through the narrative that Mr. Putin has been saying that uh, a democratically elected government in Ukraine is run by neo-Nazis. And, and, you know, I mean, uh, that seems to me a sort of thing we can do. We can't do it individually. We're too small. Mm. But we can act as a bit of a playmaker on the international stage to bring the weight of world opinion on the Russian people. So it's Russian people who can hold Mr. Putin. And that's the crucial thing, I think, in this situation. That is Professor Robert Patman. Now, there's one thing we really want to note. We are aware that here in New Zealand, historically, much of the news and information we access on Russia comes to us through an American lens. We felt it was important to get a Russian perspective on this conflict. And since from before the invasion, we have been asking the Russian ambassador to New Zealand to be interviewed on Q&A. Our requests have been declined. There was a small protest outside the Russian embassy in Wellington on Friday. Protesters held placards and threw eggs at the embassy. Our government says expelling the Russian ambassador is an option, but New Zealand has not taken that step at this stage. After the break on Q&A, record COVID cases and record hospitalizations. Our pandemic response all comes down to this. So after two years of avoiding the worst of the virus, how are our hospitals handling the Omicron surge? Hawkey Mai, welcome back to Q&A. This is it. Finally, after two years of watching other countries handle massive COVID-19 outbreaks, case numbers in New Zealand are skyrocketing. New Zealand is among the most vaccinated countries in the world, but the outbreak is testing our healthcare system. Have a look at this. At the peak of the original outbreak in 2020, we had 89 Kiwis in hospital with COVID-19. Last year, as the Delta variant surged, we peaked at 93 hospitalizations. As of yesterday afternoon, more than twice that number. 263 New Zealanders were in hospital with COVID-19. So how are our hospitals coping? Dr Pete Watson is the Chief Executive of Middlemore Hospital and is with us this morning. Tēnā queer. How has the Omicron outbreak affected Middlemore? Morena, Jack. Well, look, we are busy. I can tell you as of this morning, in fact, at Middlemore Hospital, we have 102 inpatients in the hospital. So again, more than the total number in hospital at any other time up until this outbreak. Uh, there's 228 across Auckland. But at Middlemore, we are experiencing, just as we are across the rest of the, of the country at the moment, that Omicron is different. It's much milder disease. So we only have 
two patients at Middlemore Hospital in our intensive care unit. Neither of those are ventilated currently. So it's a much milder disease. We also have over 20 patients in our emergency department this morning. Most of those will be able to be turned around and sent home with appropriate advice, but the hospital is busy. Uh, we have three dedicated COVID wards currently, but we also have patients with COVID who aren't in hospital because of their COVID illness. A good example is maternity. A woman coming in, um, you know, in labour or for maternity care who also have COVID. They're not sick from their COVID, but they have COVID illness. So the numbers are much larger. Uh, mm. So we are responding to that. Yeah, I, you know, I know it's important not to make generalisations and I know there will be exceptions, but what can you tell us about the people who are being hospitalised with Omicron mm. and with COVID-19? What, what communities at the moment are being most affected? Well, as we've experienced before, we seem to have been ground zero in South Auckland. So it's affecting our communities, more people in our communities than in other communities. And it will spread, however, and we'll see other places will be a week or two behind, but it will spread out. You know, COVID seems to seek out those communities with high numbers of unvaccinated people. So it will, it will certainly get out there. But what we're experiencing is, again, the people most likely to end up in hospital who are unwell are those with underlying health conditions, the elderly or those people who otherwise have conditions, which mean that they are vulnerable. So while for most people it's a very mild illness, they can mm -hmm. stay at home, it's much more like a, a cold you might have experienced at another time. For those people who are vulnerable, they are particularly likely to become seriously affected and end up in hospital requiring care. You're much more likely, if you're unvaccinated, to have a significantly serious disease. But of course, that's a small number of people now. So most people in hospital are actually vaccinated. That's interesting. And most people in hospital, have they received their booster shot? Well, many have. But mm. again, the majority, older people or with underlying health conditions, serious health conditions, which means that it's really the COVID on top of those health conditions, which means they're getting really unwell and ending up in hospital. And of course, we're starting to see as well now deaths from COVID, and that's the same thing. It's those people who otherwise have really complex, often ongoing health conditions, which are making them susceptible. Yeah, it's very sad. Have those people died at hospital or have those people died at home from what you understand? So there have been deaths in the hospital so far and we're really keen again that everybody ensure that if they become really sick at home they don't hesitate they call uh, for assistance that might be their gp uh, healthline or come to emergency department and get the appropriate care the hospitals are prioritizing care for those who need it because they are busy and they are stretched and it's affecting our staff as well so we're prioritizing but we want people to make sure they do that but for most people um, the likelihood of being hospitalised with uh, Omicron is very low, maybe around 1%. Most people, uh, and most of us will have had experience now of knowing somebody with COVID, certainly in Auckland we do, mm. uh, and it's a very mild illness. It's um, you know a cough, a cold, a sore throat. You can manage that at home quite comfortably, but a uh, Panadol flu is look after yourself for a few days. How are your staff being affected? Well, it's it's taking a big toll. That's one of the biggest issues. Not only are we busy, but of course, many of our staff are also getting sick or they've got household members who are sick. So, you know, they have to stay at home too. Everybody has to uh, play their part and not spread the virus. So we've had numbers of staff off are sick uh, in some areas more than others, but 
up to 10% of our staff at the end of last week were off on sick leave um, uh, or COVID-related leave, which means we have to really juggle our staff to ensure that we're providing the, the, um, the staff where we need it. So it's it's a huge effort. It's, it's pretty stressful at times, but mm. um, we've got amazing people in the health system who who will do what they need to do to prioritise to make sure we can provide the care to those who need it. Pete, is there a threshold? Is there a red line for the size of this outbreak and the number of your staff who have been affected? At which point the services at Middlemore will be affected? Well, we're prioritising already. So what that means is that we're reducing the non-urgent. I can tell you that we haven't had any deferral of urgent or acute care. So we're managing to continue with that. Mm. So at the moment, what we're doing is we are deferring non-urgent elective care. So that means some of that care, and I think people understand this, is being deferred until we're back up to full staffing again and can do that. So we're down to about 70% of our planned care elective surgery. This week, we'll look to reduce that further to ensure that we've got capacity. We're also working across the city. So every day we're having coordination meetings uh, and connecting up with the other hospitals in the city to ensure that we are prioritising our capacity. So our availability of, of um, COVID uh, beds across the mm. hospital. So across hospitals. So we're really doing that to ensure we can continue to provide everything we need. So at this point, we've got capacity, uh, we've got uh, room to move, we will mm. take, be able to provide care, but it means we have to do less of that non-urgent stuff at this point in time. We anticipate that March is gonna be a pretty tight month. I, I think we'll be in this, you know. We rely a bit on the scenario planning from you know, those people who do that work, and it looks like March is, is gonna be tight. I, I'm hopeful uh, that we'll get through March. As we slide in towards Easter, certainly in Auckland, we'll start to see that easing off again, but that's the sort of time frame we're looking at. And what does tight mean in the corridors of Middlemore? Tight means that we've got lots of people um, off sick, um, that are at home, but we have got the return to work program now, the exemption. So for those people who need those critical workers, if they're symptom free, we'll be rat testing them. They'll be wearing all of their PPE. Mm. They'll be able to come to work to help us provide. It means that you know, we will have a lot of COVID patients in the hospital. Mm. It means that we will be always prioritizing the most urgent and acute work but yeah it's it's a tough time and we need to look after so we're doing everything we can to look after our staff ensure that we can support them through it because you know it's it is challenging and that I, I think for our staff as well they're not just worried about work they've got their own whanau and other stress at home so it's mm. trying to ensure that we balance and support them at home so you know providing them with the support to support their family while they're um, getting through this is pretty important. Last question Pete we are about to speak with ACT leader David C more. His party wants to scrap MIQ, they want to end vaccine mandates and they want to end the ban on large gatherings. Now I'm not going to ask you to play politics or anything like that but I just wondered from a public health perspective what would be your response to those policy suggestions? Well you know we've been really really grateful uh, certainly in the hospital system of what we've done so far as a country to get where we are. We have watched what's happened overseas and been really fearful that that would end up here. It is our time, it is busy, but we are managing. We are really keen to continue to hold the line in terms of where we're at and to see this through. We're really still urging people who aren't boosted to get boosted. That is your best protection. Follow the advice that mm. is out there about staying at home, 
looking after yourself and we'll get through this we're really confident but um it's going to be hard but we're on the right track we're keen to stick with it a very diplomatic answer now we really appreciate your time pete thank you so much for being with us that is dr pete watson who is the CEO of Middlemore Hospital. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call or my. These are our main platforms. You can find us on email, Twitter and Facebook. you just got to get that NZQ and A. Coming up, F-U-M-I-Q. Act wants to scrap MIQ, scrap the traffic light system, scrap vaccine mandates. But is it too early to completely rip off the COVID band-aid? Welcome back to Q&A. It's time to move on. That's the message from ACT leader David Seymour who wants to end MIQ, end vaccine mandates and end the traffic light system as we know it. He says New Zealand is at a point where the benefits of the public health measures are outweighed by economic and social damage and the ACT leader is with us this morning. Kia ora, David, before we get into the changes you want to see to our COVID-19 response, I just wondered if you had any thoughts on the situation in Ukraine. Yeah, thanks. And I, I did want to raise that. Look, obviously, COVID's important to New Zealand. I welcome the opportunity to discuss it. But I think everyone in our parliament would strongly agree that this invasion is wrong. Uh, the people standing up to defend their country are morally right. And that we as a country also need to reevaluate what this means for us uh, when a Western democratically elected government can be picked off by a thug in this fashion uh, and so there's a lot that we need to address there but for now we stand with those brave people who a few moments ago were supermarket shopping and, and now are in a trench defending their city it's it's extraordinary circumstances yeah it feels like um feels like the world is burning at, at the moment doesn't it we're, we're fighting crises on multiple fronts so let's turn our mm. attention to COVID-19 mm. what changes do you want to see mm. Look, we've, throughout this pandemic, uh, ACT has said we're here to make constructive criticisms where necessary and helpful suggestions where possible. We've done four comprehensive policy papers filled with proposals throughout it. Move On is the latest one. And it's very simple. It says, look, Omicron is different. It spreads faster. And as we heard from your last guest, it's much milder. So the cost of stopping spread is much higher and the benefits of reducing cases are much lower. Uh, I know we're eager to reduce hospital uh, caseloads. I know that people are scared of the spread. But we've gone through each of the current policies and asked the simple question, um, do the benefits for reducing spread and hospitalisation exceed the cost? And as you go through them, uh, every business is required to display a QR code and you're legally supposed to scan in. It's not making any difference. Uh, we should just dump it. MIQ, we have more cases in New Zealand than just about any other country at the moment, and yet we're trying to lock them out at huge cost to tourism, to business, to separated families. Uh, we should just dump it because it's not making a difference. Uh, vaccine mandates, I've been a very strong supporter of vaccination and still am, but at this point we have 96% vaccination rate. Um, the, the continuing to exclude people from a whole range of aspects of life is going to make very little difference uh, to whether they catch it. It may slightly delay when they catch it, uh, but it's not going to change the overall outcome. And so we have to ask ourselves, why do we keep doing this to ourselves? If it's not making a difference, but it is imposing cost, then let's move on from control. You know, let's take control back of our lives. Let's move on from rules that don't make sense and start balancing some of those other needs that New Zealanders have, which are mounting mm. uh, so we could move back to talking about things like the cost of living, the difficulty with housing and child poverty because those things have all mounted up and been ignored in the meantime.
time. You hit on the reason why just a moment ago, hospitalizations, right? We're at 263 New Zealanders mm. in hospital with COVID-19 at the moment. Mm. And surely anything we can do to relieve pressure on hospitals, even if they're just marginal gains over the next few weeks, is significant. After all, New Zealand has recorded one of the lowest deaths per, death rates per capita in the world throughout this outbreak. Why don't we just continue a conservative response for a few more weeks until we're past the surge? Apologise for the helicopter, which may be making it difficult to hear what I'm saying. But look, it's a good question, Jack. I put the question the other way around. Um, if, a, if a measure that we're forced to comply with that adds costs, such as making somebody isolate for 10 days when the infectious period is day four, five and six, uh, then does it make sense to continue to impose a cost when the benefit is minuscule? So I put it the other way around. Rather than saying, well, we should keep sacrificing, keep allowing the government to control many aspects of our lives for minuscule benefit, uh, well, I think that's the wrong question. I think the government should be justifying the restrictions it puts in place. And I'll give you another one. Uh, when we were trying to eliminate COVID-19, uh, restricting large gatherings made sense because one super spreader event could lead to an outbreak and mm. kill the elimination strategy. Well, sadly, the elimination strategy is dead. So is it worth living in a climate of fear, killing hospitality, killing large events, when in reality, at best, it will change the timing of when people catch it, and probably not by very much because people are catching it in such a wide range of settings anyway. I just focus on the outcome. We're we're going mm. to the same place. Why do we persevere with these costs that are so devastating to so many aspects of people's lives? I'll focus on two, two, two elements of, of the things you want to change there. So when it comes to the ban on large gatherings, I think we would all agree that it actually mm. isn't the government policy around the ban on large gatherings that is making so many hospitality businesses struggle at the moment. I mean, clearly people um, are concerned about being in public spaces and they want to reduce their risk as much as possible. And when it comes to scanning in, we spoke with epidemiologist uh, Dr Michael Bates and he said the purpose, he said you make a good point at the moment, it might seem uh, like contact tracing doesn't make much sense. But when we get to the other side of the Omicron surge, cases drop and we want to accelerate the speed with which those numbers are dropping, once again contact tracing is a tool that would assist us to do that and it would assist businesses to get back to business as quickly as possible. Well, I think that speaks to a lot of the frustration that people have. Uh, if, he's, if Michael Baker is seriously saying that he's actually planning to use more restrictions and rules after the peak, I mean, people have just been getting used to the idea that we might be able to drop some of the rules and restrictions after the peak, and it's that sense of unending control, COVID before anything else, that I think has got people so frustrated. In terms of what he's actually trying to say, uh, it seems very unlikely that something where, you know, fewer than two million scans are being done each day now, even if you scan in, the last 10 people at the venue apparently didn't. Uh, so it's not clear how mm. it's actually going to help in any circumstance, let alone afterwards. When it comes to hospitality, I agree with you, it's not so much the 100 uh, size venue limits that have done a lot of damage uh, to events that affect hospitality. Nevertheless, it is that climate of fear from which we need to move on. It's the isolation rules that make no sense. People can't afford to be isolated for 10 days if they become a case or a household contact. 
What we should do is follow Singapore who say it's 72 hours, you get a negative test, you're out. And this is again why people find so offensive that you're asked to spend an additional six or seven days in isolation. You probably don't have it, but you're not allowed to buy a test. You should be able to get them at a supermarket like any other civilised country. And yet we're constantly asked to make sacrifices that won't move the dial in terms of our overall outcomes of getting through this with minimal hospitalisation. And that's why ACT says we should simply move on from rules that don't make sense. All right. Thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. That is ACT leader David yeah. Seymour. Should we take a bet? Do we reckon the chopper was going to one of David's neighbours' place? Or was it the police eagle? I think I know where I put my money. After the break, would you drink water straight from the tap if it was still under a precautionary boil notice? Because most people in Reefton reckon, yeah, that's a safe bet. That's just one of them things, if you want to drink, you just, yeah, turn your tap on and have a drink and you don't really think too much about it. Kia ora we welcome back to Q&A. Three Waters is among the most controversial reforms in this government's policy agenda. We're going to do a lot on Three Waters this year. And we want to start in Reefton, on the South Island's west coast. It was the first place in Aotearoa to get a public electricity supply. But in the time since, Reefton's infrastructure has fallen behind. In fact, for two years now, Reefton has been on a boil water notice. Jessica Roden paid a visit. A daily chore for the people of Reefton, boiling the jug. Not just for a cup of tea, but a glass of water and brushing your teeth too. All of our water infrastructure here is at least 80 years old. It's been patched and, and mended and, and sort of fixed up over the years, but the basic infrastructure was shot. The situation's so dire that a precautionary boil water notice has been in place for two years now, meaning any water consumed should be boiled or filtered first. I have never drunk the water since I moved here. The month I moved here, seven years ago, and brown came out of the water. But many people do. Well, I don't think anybody's taking any notice of it because it's been that long. Just one of them things, if you want to drink, you just, yeah. Turn your tap on and have a drink and you don't really think too much about it. I can assure you that there, there's barely a local in town that hasn't been drinking from the tap over the last two years. Do you boil your water? I do, but we don't um, vehemently adhere to it. Even if it's just clean your teeth in the afternoon, you know, you don't go and get your boiled water. The vast majority of residents I've spoken to say they no longer boil their water or they never did in the first place. But one resident who didn't want to appear on camera says she's immunocompromised and boils her water every time because she can't afford to get sick. She questions why she's paying full rates when for the last two years she's been unable to get a glass of water out of her own tap. The notice was initially sparked by a positive E. coli reading, something that had been an issue on and off for years. But the water is checked at multiple sites weekly and since 2020, no E. coli has been detected. So I can categorically, hand on heart, say that the water is safe at the moment to drink in Reefton. It's ludicrous to say otherwise. If that's the case though, why is there a precautionary boil water notice in place? Is it necessary? Um, my belief is no. My belief is it could be lifted. Dave Hawes believes the current approach is too risk adverse. It's like anything, you cry wolf and eventually people become immune to something. 
Komata Adawai is the government's new water regulator as part of the Three Waters reforms. It agrees these prolonged notices aren't ideal. That's one of the, one of the reasons we um, can sympathise or empathise with um, consumers who have long-term or are under current permanent boil water notices, that you do become, I guess, a little bit conditioned to the risk. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a hassle to always boil your water before you, you drink it. And, and that's why um, we see them as, as effective short-term solutions, but they are problematic long-term. I think it's a little ridiculous, really. And I think if we've got clear readings, we should be able to allow people to drink out of our taps. At Dawson's Hotel, this is a week's worth of water, and at $7.50 a pop, it adds up. We are buying in a lot of water for our guests, uh, so we order approximately between 6 and 10, 10 litre containers of water a week. While residents can choose whether they heed the warning of the precautionary boil water notice, many businesses here in town don't have that luxury, particularly those that deal with food and beverages. One business has told me they're currently using bottled water to make bread and clean dishes, which they say is a waste. Since 2020, $1.4 million of water upgrades have been completed, fixing Reefton's most pressing issues, but that doesn't solve the problem. There's a requirement for uh, water suppliers who operate reticulated networks for them to, uh, to uh, have, have what they call residual disinfection. So that means a level of, of protection in their distribution network. At the moment, they don't chlorinate or they don't provide a residual disinfection. The bottom line is that for the notice to be lifted, the water likely needs to be chlorinated, something the town is overwhelmingly against. At some stage, possibly towards, probably towards the end of the year, we'll have to start introducing chlorination, unless there is some miracle that comes about. And, you know, things change. Sense prevails sometimes. Reefton's water woes highlighting the type of issues the Three Waters Reforms aims to prevent. I think it's probably a similar story across the motu in that uh, you, have, you have quite significant investment needed um, to upgrade or to maintain and install uh, drinking water infrastructure and maybe a small base to spread that out. Buller Council says they're keeping an open mind about Three Waters, but like many, are waiting on more details. And as for Reefton, residents will keep waiting too. The precautionary boil water notice not going anywhere anytime soon. Jessica Roden with that report. Hey, uh, Q&A, stay with us. Q&A will return after the break. Hawkey Mai, welcome back to Q&A. Just before we go, we've got a quick update for you on a story we brought you last year. Remember Geo40, the company based at the Ohaki power station near Taupo? It's developed a technique for getting lithium out of geothermal waste fluid. Well, as we first indicated when we profiled them last year, the government has invested in the technology through its replacement to the Provincial Growth Fund. This week, Minister Stuart Nash confirmed the government's investment of $2 million in an equity stake in Geo40 as it looks to scale its technology. You can view that story on the Q&A YouTube channel or TVNZ On Demand. Kumutu, that is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thanks for watching. And now, mihi kia koutou i ngā karere. Hei tērā wiki. We'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.